rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and his holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the field in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And he has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now this sums up well some of the themes from last week that we looked at in Philippians uh, chapter 2, verse 6 to 11. Especially the theme of humility found in verse 52 of this passage in Luke's gospel. God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And this is a good segue into the part of the theme for this week. And this is that his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So while we are continuing with our series on Philippians this morning, it is good to be reminded during the season of Advent that the theme of salvation, which we will be dealing with this morning, is the theme of Advent. Mary's song introduces this theme beautifully as she proclaims, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And this ties in beautifully with the theme of Philippians. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Or rejoice, the Lord is King, as I said over and over as we introduced every sermon. It is the theme of God, our Savior, that we extol during this period. And this is a theme that we will be focusing on this morning in our text. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 13 and verses 14 this morning. Verses 12 and 13, sorry. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Father, grant us this morning the insight that we need, that our hearts may soar to the Lord on high, and that we ourselves may be humbled before the majesty of his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The goal of parenting, and I'll start with an illustration of parenting, it's not a sermon on parenting, but the goal of parenting is to raise children who would become good citizens that are a benefit to the society. That's parenting across the board. I'm not talking about Christian parenting. I'm talking about parenting in general. The role of good parenting is to raise children who would be good citizens and a benefit to their society. The way we achieve this is by training children to obey values that transcend us as parents so that our children will obey the principles 
whether they are in our presence or not. That's good parenting right there. You teach them values that transcend you as parents. Don't obey me because I'm your parents, but rather obey these principles and these values so that when they are not with you, they will still obey those values. Now, the Philippian Christians were like spiritual children to the Apostle Paul. And he addresses them as such in this section that we're going to be dealing with in the next few weeks, from verses 12 to 18. He calls them my beloved. It's an endearing term. It's like a fraternal term that he gives to them as his children. But rather than calling them to obey him, even though he could as an apostle, he calls them to obey the values that he has instructed them in the gospel. The goal is that they may become good citizens of heaven, which is the overarching imperative found in 1 verse 27, and so shine as lights in the world amid a crooked and twisted generation. Chapter 2 verse 15. Now Paul will begin by laying the foundation for the obedience in verses 12 to 14 with the imperative, work out your own salvation. Here Paul will teach the church what the Christian's responsibility is in light of God's activity in salvation. We will consider our passage in two points, and these will provide us with the argument of the passage. Obedience furthers the initial work of salvation, which God is working in us for his own glory. Point one, obedience furthers the initial work of salvation. Point two, which God is working in us for his own glory. All right, let's unpack that argument. First point, obedience furthers the initial work of salvation. If you can recall, Paul wrote in chapter 1, verse 6, these words, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of of Jesus Christ. This is how he opens up his letter. This is the initial prayer that he prays for. And this is the basis for understanding my present statement. Obedience furthers the initial work of salvation. Now the word translated good work in 1 verse 6 is the same word which has sparked all the controversy about the good works and faith in James chapter 2. That's the work there. Same word that we find in James chapter 2, littered right throughout that chapter, which has sparked a great deal of controversy about, well, you know, work salvation, do we do works in order to merit salvation, and all those kinds of things between Rome and especially the Protestants. But we understand in Paul's literature, especially here in Philippians 1 verse 6, it is clear that Paul equates the initial work of salvation with God himself. That's clear Pauline theology. It is God who begins the work. But if it is God who begins the work, who continues the work? In this passage, we must ask the question, is Paul saying, live in such a way, then you'll be saved? Or is he saying, now that you have been saved, live in such a way? Well, let us unpack the passage and see. Now, Paul begins this section with these words. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, the key word there, 
So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. In this way, Paul turns to the subject of Christian obedience. This is the central feature of this whole section. Paul wants the Philippian church, through his paternal affection for them, to be good citizens of heaven. That's what he's calling them to be. He is recalling the principles which he has taught them and asking them to continue living these out even when he is not present among them. It is the hope of every parent that their children would continue to obey the principles they have been taught, even in their absence. And so, it is Paul's concern for this local church too. But the lesson he gives in the nature of obedience begins here with this imperative. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's the imperative of this section. And it is on this phrase here that we must focus our attention this morning. What does Paul mean by the phrase translated, work out your own salvation? Now the imperative translated work out is a different word used in verses 13 for it is God who works in you. And it's also both of these are different words found in chapter 1 verse 6. For he who began a good work in you. These are different words. It's not the same word used as in 1 verse 6. So the word here in verse 12 has the sense of seeking, seeing a task through to the end. Right? So that's the sense that we get from this particular word here. Work out your own salvation. It's like you've been given a job by your employer and he says, okay, go ahead, make sure it's getting done and get done. Right? Now, if we want to interpret it loosely and translate it a little loosely, Paul is saying, as citizens of heaven... You have been given a job to do. Now, get on with it. Don't give up until you're finished. That's basically what Paul is saying. And Paul is going to continue this theme in verse 14 with another imperative by telling them to do their job without grumbling or disputing, referring to disgruntled workers who would mutter and question under their breaths at their employer's instructions. Here, in a word, Paul is saying, Get on with your tasks as obedient citizens of heaven. This is why Paul qualified his statement with fear and trembling. This was the typical response expected of slaves to their masters. This is the same sense carried over by Peter in 1 Peter 2 verse 16 to 17 when he writes, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants, literally as slaves of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, and then fear God, honor the emperor. Same sense of what Peter's trying to carry over there. We are to live before the holy God who has redeemed us as his servants in this world with a commission given by him in fear of him, not though in the fear of judgment, but rather in the fear of understanding that he is the one with all authority. And he expects us to fulfill the mandate that he's given us. It's kind of like an employer relationship. But the question we have to ask is, what does Paul mean by the term salvation in this text? How does he intend for us to understand the meaning? Now, it is clear that he is referring to our salvation through Christ because it follows on the heels of verses 6 to 11, which describes Jesus' work in redemption. Paul is saying... In light of what Jesus has done by delivering you, 
further this work in your own lives and the lives of others by living lives that is worthy of the gospel, the overarching imperative of chapter 1, verse 27. And what is this lives worthy of the gospel? We, we know. We saw this in the last few weeks. From chapter 27 to the end of chapter 1, um, uh, it's, it's the call to unity among the opposition from the culture. In chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, it's a call to unity among one another, by serving one another. And Paul's point is this. How the Philippians stand together in a hostile culture and how they love one another is part of their job description as citizens of heaven. This is a task that's been given to them as Christians. It is not an option. It is an imperative. And Paul is basically telling them to get on and do it with fear and trembling and without grumbling and disputing. For this is the end for which Christ has redeemed them to be a people who is under his authority as their Lord and commissioned by him to further the end for which he died, the redemption of many. This is why Paul wrote in 1 verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and now they're working together for the furtherance of the gospel. And, of course, this passage refers to the term of salvation again. Not being afraid of your opponents, for this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So our obedience to the commission of Christ, or our striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, is a sure sign of our salvation to a perishing world. It's the way in which we witness are striving together. And here again, it's recalled once again that this is part of our duty. This is our responsibility. This is part of the work that we are given to do. This is why I say that obedience furthers the initial work of salvation. It furthers that initial work started by Christ when he came into the world, described in Philippians 2, verse 6 to 11, as he started it off. And it also furthers it in my own life as I persevere in the faith in a hostile world. It doesn't further it in order that I gain my salvation through it, but it furthers it in terms of living out the mandate that I have been given in salvation, furthering it in the lives of others by proclaiming it and modeling it and furthering it out in my own life and one another's life as a community, living out the principles of the gospel. So to answer my question above, the passage is clearly saying, now that you have been saved, you ought to live like this. It is calling Christians who have been re redeemed to obedience. It is not telling Christians that they must do such and such to add or rather complete their salvation. And if they don't, bad news, purgatory <laughs> or lostness. No. The word translated work out is to be seen as a job description that we've been given and we are to see it through. Or in other words, see to it that it gets done. So, my first point, obedience furthers the initial work of salvation. Point two, which God is working in us for his own glory. Which God is working in us for his own glory. 
Verse 13 really states in another way what we already read in chapter 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying here, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Why? Verse 13. Because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right, let's unpack this verse. The question we have to ask is whether where the emphasis in this verse lies. Is it in the individual or is it in the community? In other words, do we have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in us collectively or in us individually? And the answer is both. It's a false dichotomy to set those up in opposition to each other. However, we must see the community as an emphasis with the individual being a part of that community. In our individualistic context, we like to apply these passages to individual salvation and often overlook the corporate element. But Paul is writing to the church. He is writing for the unity of the gospel. He is concerned about their collective wellness. So we must acknowledge that he's pointing out that God is at work among them. This is why the fear and trembling is added to the imperative. God isn't just dealing with me as an individual. He is dealing with us as a people. And so God is not only at work in my own personal life, though this is certainly true and we glorify him for that, but he is at work in every other individual member of the community too. And if God is concerned about them, the other members of this community, so should I be. This is the foundations for the instructions of chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, to consider others more significant than ourselves. God is at work in their lives, so I must be very careful not to do anything that may disturb or disrupt that work. Hence the fear and trembling. I must be in partnership with God, not in opposition to him. The corporate element is emphasized in 1 verse 6 since the context of that prayer is for the corporate well-being of the church. So it is as if Paul is saying, I'm sure of this, and I'm going to use a southern term here for those of you who are from the south. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good word in y'all will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, right? And in the same way, we must read in 2 verse 13, for it is God who works and wills in y'all, you know? I like the collective nature of that y'all, you all, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is working among God's people. But the glorious truth is that God is also at work in my own individual life. It's a both and, it's not an either or. The church is made up of redeemed individuals in whom God is at work. And for that we can rejoice. And here it come down, comes down to my personal security as a believer. If God has begun a good work in me, then he is the one who is going to work it to its completion. He's the one doing the good work. And he is the one that's going to bring it to the day of Jesus Christ. The individual promise of the passage is true. And we can trust in that for our personal salvations. God does not guarantee the survival of local churches. 
but he does guarantee the survival of believers in Christ. And so we find this beautiful promise that our obedience is in fact grounded in God's own activity that enables us to persevere. But we must remember that the individual serves the body of believers under the lordship of Christ. You are called to Christ and called to a people. And this is why Paul's instruction in chapter 2 verse 3 to 4 is so focused on the individual action of each member. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It is in the corporate body where God is at work that the individual flourishes. And so the individual must understand with fear and trembling that he or she is participating in a community where God himself or quite literally, God's energy and his effective power is in action. And we know that's the work and role of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Old Testament has striking examples to illustrate this point. And then one of the most striking places to look at is Exodus 19 and 20, the giving of the Lord Mount Sinai. The Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai, they camped at the mountain, and God himself descended upon the mountain in cloud covering his glory, and the mountain shaking and rumbling and lightning flashes, and an awesome display of his majesty. But I want you to listen to how the Israelites responded in Exodus 20, verse 18 to 21. And it says this, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that, you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Friends, it is the same God at work in the local church that descended upon Mount Sinai. And we are to have the same attitude as those Israelites had when they witnessed the descent of God upon the mountain. It is to strike awe, struck fear and terror in our own hearts that God, the Holy One, the one whom we cannot even look upon lest we die, should work in and among us by His Spirit. I've often said one of the greatest mysteries in all of religious history is the incarnation of God in Christ. God taking on flesh. It's one of the greatest mysteries. But to me, there's been perhaps an equal history, um, mystery, and that is the dwelling of the holy God in sinful man. That's also a great mystery that we cannot comprehend. But it's true that God dwells in every true believer by His Holy Spirit. The very God who descended upon Mount Sinai dwells in each and every single one of you. If you are a true believer in Christ. 
And so the text is saying, with fear and trembling, we are to understand that God is at work among the believers. But what is the purpose of his working among us, we must ask? The text tells us that God is at work among us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The NIV puts it like this, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It is for his purpose, for his pleasure, that he is at work in and among us. Of course, it's for our great good. But it is for his glory that he does so. And this obviously connects us with chapter 2, verse 6 to 11, and the purpose of Christ in his redemptive work, which was for the glory of his Father. And this theme is carried over when the shepherds were in their field and the angels broke out in song among them. In Luke chapter 2, verse 14, which I asked Pastor Rick to read. Listen to this. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. His good pleasure. It's the same word used. This is the Advent theme. He works in you for his pleasure because of his glory. Here we see that God is at work among us for his own good pleasure, which in the scriptures cannot be divorced from the pursuit of his own glory. This has been a central focus of John Piper's ministry. Everyone, anyone that's ever listened to many of John Piper's sermons or read many of his books will find the single theme over here that he, he tries to bring out, obviously, the pursuit of God's own glory in the salvation of man. That's one of the key themes that he tries to highlight. Listen to how he puts it in this book, The Pleasures of God. Grace is the pleasure of God to magnify the worth of God by giving sinners the right and power to delight in God without obscuring his glory. I'll say it again. Grace is the pleasure of God to magnify the worth of God by giving sinners the right and power to delight in God without obscuring his glory. Salvation means we receive the benefit and God receives the glory. And this is how Paul opened up his Philippians in chapter 1 verse 11. Christians are to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ, our benefit, to the glory and praise of God, our purpose. So we can conclude by singing with Mary, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That's the theme of Advent on this day as we focus the Magnificat from Mary. And indeed, salvation is from God from beginning to end and for his glory. But magnifying the Lord isn't a mere emotional experience without affecting change in our lives and how we live among one another. We magnify the Lord mostly by living lives that are obedient to his commission in Christ. Jesus said very simply, 
Who are my mother and who are my brothers and who are my sisters? Those who do the will of my father. And so this Advent, we've got to consider from Paul's text here, our obedience and lights of our salvation. So how do we magnify the Lord? We do this in two ways. Firstly, by stopping all our grumbling and disputing and getting on with the task that he has called us to do. We can only do this when we adopt the same attitude that Jesus had in his redemptive work, which is also a great theme found in Mary's Magnificat, and that is his humility. Have the same mind that is yours in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself. Humility. And secondly, we will only be humbled when we behold the glory of God in salvation. This is the purpose of our humbling. When we see how God works salvation in individual lives and how he works among the corporate being and we grasp that, it will humble us. And when we are humbled, we will realize that it is for his purpose and his good pleasure that he is at work among us. Glory to God in the highest and on earth Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let us pray. Father, grant us now this season, and as we come to the supper, this table set before us, to, in light of your work and salvation, to consider these things and be humbled and so magnify you in obedience to your commission. In Jesus' name, amen.